You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, this is your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Lord, we pray that as we talk about issues that are difficult for our minds and our hearts to understand, Lord, and the enemy would would have us be divided over those issues, we pray that you would give us clarity, but also charity towards one another, but above all, submitting to you and your word for our good, but above all, for your great glory. In Jesus' name. Okay, just a, a word um, of, uh, this is just a footnote. I'm taking a liberty here. Um, if you're really upset with the rector, don't talk to him between services or before he goes in to talk about predestination uh, because that really uh, throws him uh, for a loop. And uh, because I tend to, is, um, as, as much as I um, uh seem like I'm pretty even keel, I, I get a little bit emotional and, and get sucked into that stuff. So uh, if I have offended you with anything I've done or said, please do tell me. Just don't tell me while I'm walking into a class or about to preach a sermon, um, because then I'm going to preach about you, uh, and um, like I am right now. Um, um, but but and it just it doesn't allow for the time. That, and if you're really upset about something, the worst time to talk about is in the heat of the moment. I mean, if you've ever had a conversation like that with your spouse, how productive is that? Right? I mean, it's basically using words to hurt one another, and, um, and um, thankfully this person's not predestined, so I don't have to worry about them in heaven. Uh, but I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Um, um, but um, I, I want, if you were at the 9 o'clock, I, I'm, I'm going to bring this up. Uh, at the 9 o'clock, if you were there, if you're at the 11 o'clock, I want you to listen very carefully Um, I uh, make a comparison talking about mistaking the experience for the one giving the experience. That is Jesus Christ. And what I said was um, that there are churches out there trying to create an experience uh, without the gospel. Uh, People who would put up smoke machines and big screens and uh, and pyrotechnic fireworks uh, and that stuff. Uh, Most of us in our head would right now agree, shaking our heads, but this is the part that's going to upset people. And I said, but that's the same. If you're just doing it to create an experience, that's the same as incense, flooding the church with candles, and with putting up rude screens, which is a thing that that the medieval church put up to separate the table from the people. And I understand that that uh, will upset some people. Uh, but I really want us to think long and hard because are we trying to create an experience on Sunday morning? And if you're trying to create it by adding things in like that, it's a blasphemy because the focus is on Jesus Christ. And if you want an experience with God, that comes through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, it's very dangerous because I've got the bully pulpit, literally. Um, uh, and, uh, but um, I know that there are a number of people who came into Anglicanism uh, looking for something uh, a little bit more like that, and under the misunderstanding that we're somehow Catholic light or JV Catholics, which is not it at all, is it? We're part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church 
that expresses itself in its Anglicanism uh, through various and sundry things. And, um, and so uh, I, would, um, I would give you a word of comfort um, that uh, I would much rather, that I look forward to the day when someone comes up to me, and although this would be a bad day, and isn't upset over whether or not the acolyte was wearing boat shoes or whether the processional was a perfectly straight line and we moved like the Marine Corps band uh, and, and actually said, I take issue with that sermon because I don't think it clearly articulated the gospel. That's when I know my job is done. One, because if I'm not preaching the gospel, toss me out. Uh, but two, um, it means that you get it. And, and I feel this way already, that you already do get it. And that's one of the great things about being the dean and rector here is I'm expendable. Uh, why? Because this is a church that's been, that has been captivated by the gospel and understands keeping first things uh, first. And, uh, look, I live with a bunch of women. I know what it's like to someone to be mad at me at any given moment. Uh, but, um, uh, but nonetheless, um, be mad at me over, over something eternal, right? Uh, be mad at me over, uh, for instance, the other day I was, I was at a, Lauren told me, she said, we're going to a party with a bunch of divorce lawyers. And I said, what? 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 What's happening? And, um, and, uh, and, and shame on me for not sharing the gospel when I had the opportunity last night. Shame on me. But how easy it is to shrink away from those things, isn't it? You don't want to cause a fuss. You want to get invited back, although I had no intention of getting back to a congregation of divorce attorneys. Uh, but nonetheless, shame on me for that. And, and I, you know, when it comes to talking about who my pastor is, do you know who my pastor is? Reverend to everybody. You. You actually have a responsibility to pastor me and to pull me aside and say, keep on, brother. Preach it. Or... You know, I wish that you were a little bit more clear about this. It didn't make much sense in the sermon. Uh, or, I really feel like you let this one slip. You dodged an issue that everybody's thinking about right now. That's, that's your responsibility, and I actually welcome uh, that to, to, to pull uh, me aside and to actually uh, pastor me. And so, uh, that being said, uh, let's really get you angry at me, and let's talk about predestination. I didn't dodge the bullet last week. I put it up there because I thought I might get to it in talking about God's sovereignty. Um, but up till now, what we've talked about is the articles have done a very good job of talking about our human sinfulness, right? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, right? It's a, it's a condition that is inherent to all of us, and there's nothing that we can do to get ourselves out of the dilemma. We need someone from the outside to rescue us. And so God, in his mercy, sends Jesus Christ to do just that. And that his free gift of grace is that. For the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the glorious gospel message, and there's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor, and there's nothing that you can do to unearn it. And once he has a hold of you, he will never let you go. Now, it's hard uh, to talk about uh, that without ultimately getting to predestination, and that's exactly where the reformers went. So let's, let me read this, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll parse it uh, out. 
Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, He hath constantly decreed by His counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom He hath chosen in Christ out of mankind, and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation, as vessels made to honor. Wherefore, they which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God, be called according to God's purpose by His Spirit, working in due season. They, through grace, obey the calling. They be justified freely. They be made sons of God by adoption. They be made like the image of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And they walk religiously in good works. And at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. As the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh and their earthly members, and drawing up their mind to high and heavenly things, as well because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ as because it doth fervently kindle their love towards God. So, for curious and, uh, and carnal persons, lacking the Spirit of Christ, to have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall, even though here we go, whereby the devil, do, the devil doth thrust them either into desperation or into wretchlessness of most unclean living, no less perilous than desperation. Furthermore, we must receive God's promises in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture, and in our doings that will of God is to be followed, and which we have expressly declared unto which he we have expressly declared unto us in the Word of God. Whew. All right, we're going to work backwards uh, through this. One, everybody's got a lot of opinions about predestination, but everybody's opinion, including mine, doesn't matter a hill of beans. What matters is what God's Word says, which we're going to engage with this morning. Uh, this is not some theory. Uh, in fact, um, uh, when people start saying, well, that's Calvinist. Uh, actually, uh, the whole thing of five-point Calvinism, Calvin doesn't even mention that in his institutes. That came later on at a place called the Synod of Dort. And guess who was there? Representatives from the Church of England. Now, I'm not saying that we're all a bunch of Presbyterians because there are some nuances here that I think are worth noting. Uh, but the first thing that we notice, that working backwards, is that before everything, we have to receive God's promises is they're generally set forth in Holy Scripture. So it's Mark Twain saying, it's not the parts of the Bible that I, un that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do understand. And typically, if, you, if you're in a Bible study or if you're reading your Bible on your own, when you get to a tricky part like Romans 9 or Ephesians 1, I gloss over it, right? I don't know what you do. But I, you know, I, I don't stop and dwell in dealing uh, with the issue of predestination. But there it is, square right in front of us. Uh, and so uh, we have to grapple with it because it is expressly declared. It's not kind of hinted at. Uh, it is the over, one of the overarching narratives of Scripture. So you start in Genesis uh, and God's uh, first um, uh, glimmer of the gospel that there would be one who would uh, have his uh, heel bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent and so salvation uh, being laid out, and, uh, and then from there, uh, God's choosing of Abraham. Uh, why did he choose Abraham? What did Abraham have going for him? 
nothing. He just chose him out of his goodness and mercy. And then the people of Israel. I mean, think if you're a poor Egyptian. Wouldn't you say, this is kind of unfair? Like, why is God on your side and not on our side? And we're going to get into that um, uh, as we move on. Uh, But we see that uh, throughout uh, the Old Testament of God's continual pursual of his people, and this is where the, it's uh, of godly consideration, it's sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons because the people of Israel, even though they deserve for God to say, forget you, he continually pursued him, pursued them. So in the book of Judges, you have this cycle of the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, something happened that caused them to repent, normally involving the Amalekites, uh, and then uh, God, after hearing their cries, sent them a judge to rule over them who was a type of rescuer, a type of Messiah. But if you look really closely in the book of Judges, there's a wonderful, wonderful little tiny thing that most people miss, and that's in the calling of Gideon. So the cycle for Gideon is not the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, they repented, and God sent them a judge, and then the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. All it says is that the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he sent them a judge. Gideon. Remember Gideon? Where did God find him? Hiding. He was hiding in the wine press. He was threshing out the wheat so the enemies wouldn't see the dust and come and try to take it from him. So God calls a rescuer who is not like dressed for battle saying, let's, let's roll, let's make this happen, uh, but actually is hiding from the very enemy that he's supposed to destroy. And even when Gideon sets about, about it, he tears down the Asher poles, these pagan idol poles uh, that uh, were set up uh, and allowed even by the uh, Israelites. And who was the most upset with them? The Israelites for tearing down the idols. I mean, it's, I mean, you would know the feeling. I mean, Episcopalians, we're the worst at this. I mean, if, if I started tearing down plaques, woo, right? I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even get one screw undone before the arrow, I mean, literal arrows. I don't know where you keep your crossbows, but, uh, and I have to imagine some of y'all are packing heat, but statistically in Alabama, some of you are. Uh, uh, so it was the Israelites that were the most, uh, but there's a, obviously a big difference between Asher poles and plaques, uh, but for them it was representative of something and it was going to cause problems, especially with their enemies, and so they got upset about it. And then when Gideon finally says, yeah, it was, it was me, uh, they kind of laugh. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Who do you think you are chopping those things down? And yet, God's power was made perfect and manifest in his weakness so that when the great victories came, nobody, and I mean nobody, could take credit for it except God. Remember when he took all those men down and they began to drink and God said, here's how I want you to sort them out. Those who put their face down to the water and lap it up that way, don't take them. Only take the ones who use their hands and cup it to their mouths, which really sent them a reduced force. I mean, it was a real, uh, again, it was like, I, I'm going to have to put my trust in you. And this is the story throughout. We talked about Hosea being called to marry a, a prostitute named Gomer. 
who promised, I'll marry you, but I'm going to be really unfaithful to you. I'm actually going to continue my line of work. And, I mean, the heartache that Hosea must have gone through, but God said, now you have just an inkling, the tiniest of inklings of what it's like for me to love my people. Us, right? We're all Gomer. Now, we may not live our lives in the same way that that Gomer does, uh, but how unfaithful are we to God? And yet, uh, God's love for us is not action consequence. It's not, if you do this, then I will love you. It is, I love you, you're my people, I've saved you, you're mine. You're mine. And so, the doctrine of election just says that. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ because he's laid claim on you and it's irrevocable. And so if you're a believer, this is great news, isn't it? This is amazing news that in spite of our gomerness, we are his. And there's nothing and no one that can take that away. And so, but the other problem is, and this is the way that it, well, it's to stop. This is the way it manifests itself. It's unspeakable comfort and such, uh, as, and such as feeling themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ. Right? You feel the work of the Spirit within you, mortifying the works of the flesh, which simply means you feel the battle. It's real but between what you desire now as a believer, the things that God desires, versus what your flesh desires. So there's a war waging within you, a la Romans 7. Uh, and their earthly members and drawing up their mind to high and heavenly things. You begin to set your mind on heavenly things, even if you struggle with it. So last night at the party, I'm sitting there thinking, I really need to witness to these people. Guess who doesn't think those thoughts? Unbelievers. Right? But as believers, all of a sudden, and it's not consistent. I will say that, but all of a sudden you start thinking of things. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody's pouring their heart out and you think, I really ought to pray for them right now? And often we don't. We might say something like, I'll be sure to pray for you. But actually you feel the Spirit's prompting to pray then. Right? That's a sign of the Spirit working within you that you want to minister to somebody who's, uh, who's struggling. So you've got your mind to high and heavenly things as well because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith in eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ because it it kindles our love towards God. So when we're aware of God's one-way love for us that's given without any sense of reciprocity, right? It's not God saying, you know, I've been loving you a whole bunch and you've been giving me short shrift so long, turkey. That's not how it works. But actually when we understand God's love for us, understanding the great lengths that he's gone to to save us, that begins to engender love in our hearts for God. We can't help but love him. How many of us in our own daily lives, and this is a really hard thing to come by because we're all sinful human beings, but someone that will actually love you and show you forgiveness and mercy when you've hit rock bottom rather than the person standing over you saying, I told you this was going to happen. Didn't I warn you? You know, I mean, think if you fell into the ocean. I, ta- I told you you should have thought, you should have taken swim lessons, idiot. 
there's a place for that. We've talked about that in the past. We got into it a little bit last week. But also, when it comes to salvation, I don't want people to think, let's stick with the ocean liner. You've fallen off the ocean liner, and you're just kind of there flailing, and, or you're, you're flailing in the water, and another boat comes by, and you flag them down. The nature of salvation as such is that you're dead, and you're on the bottom of the ocean. Right? You have no ability to actually turn to the Lord Jesus Christ except he jumps by the incarnation headlong into the sea. He swims to the bottom. He raises you to new life at the expense of his own death. He drowns so that you can live. That is the picture of salvation that the Bible lays out. Not, I need a little bit of extra help, uh, or uh, I'm not, I mean, it's, we are, and people get this wrong all the time. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I do think that there's an element about it, loving your neighbor. That's what Jesus, that's how it prompts it, to love your neighbor. But the only person who has ever loved their neighbor as God intended is Jesus himself. And you know the parable. Remember all these holy, righteous guys pass by him, and some of them, his guys dying in a ditch. And, uh, and for all they know, they think he's dead. Because remember one of them says, who's a priest, if I go over and I touch him, I might be made unclean for the temple, and so I don't want to do that. And then people just, you know, it might be a ruse. It might be some robbers waiting to come and, and, and rob me. And finally, the Samaritan who is the lowest of the low, comes by and begins to minister to the person, picks them up out of the ditch, sets them on the uh, donkey, gets them to an inn, pays for their rehabilitation and recuperation. Now, yes, we ought to all be like that when we see our brother and sister in need. And that was the mark of the early church, see how they love one another. But the deeper meaning of that parable is, guess what? We're the ones in the ditch and Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one who counts all that other worry about temple purification and all that stuff is because his love for you is so fierce. God is so for you that in some real sense, he's against himself. Think about that. God is so for you that he's against himself because he himself dies so that you might live. And so for the Christian, this is amazing news that that we've been rescued. And I know that people, especially you get into John's gospel where Jesus says in the interaction with Thomas, not knowing the way, and he says, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And people wince. People wince. But if you understand who you are in your sinfulness, and you understand who Jesus is, you praise God that there is a way. Because there really shouldn't be. And yet, God in his mercy saves us. So for us that are believers, this is great news. But this is very pastoral because the reformers say, so for curious and carnal persons, that is unbelievers, people who are kind of seeking, even people who are interested in Jesus, lacking the spirit of Christ, to have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall, whereby the devil doth thrust them either into desperation or into wretchlessness of most unclean living, no less perilous than desperation. So what are the reformers saying? Don't do what you're doing, Andrew. <laughs> but what they're saying is that for the godly, yes, this is a word of comfort. So if you came to my study and said... Um, said, I'm just not sure of my salvation. And, and I'm talking to you, and you're giving me this testimony that you indeed know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to talk about this, right? I'm going to talk about your election. And it doesn't matter how you feel because there was a historical event that is objective and outside of you that happened 2,000 years ago. And whether you feel it or not, it happened and it worked. That's why we go to the communion table. And if you listen closely, we say, who made there one oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world? Where? There. Not here. Not over there. There, on a hill called Calvary. But if you're up there preaching, and this is, this is a little bit of a shot against uh, the Presbyterians. If you're up there going on and on about predestination, it's ultimately going to drive the curious and carnal to desperation. It's going to actually plague them. And there is a way that you can do this that is so unpastoral that you can actually begin to make believers wonder... Well, am I part of the elect? How do I know? Well, we've just gone over that. You struggle? You're throwing yourself on the mercy of Jesus? Are you understanding that you need him for your everything, most especially your salvation? What, what more proof? What more, uh, what is, what's the great line for them? Uh, what more can he say than to you he hath said? Right? It, that, that is evidence of the spirit working within you. And most people who worry about whether or not they're part of the elect or predestined are worried because of their, of their sin. Right? They're worried because they think, well, I'm not a nice person. But the gospel's not about being nice. Now, I hope and, and understand that the Holy Spirit working within us produces uh, the fruit of good living. Absolutely. Uh, but you can tell a real Christian... Because they can admit, I'm not a nice person. Non-Christians think they're nice people. Uh, but but I, I know my own deficiencies. In fact, uh, I know a lot of non-Christians who are much nicer than I am. And actually, if you want to become, I have to be very careful how I say this, if you want to become a better person, stop looking at yourself and look at Jesus. Stop trying to work on yourself and actually set your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you're going to see the results. That's where you're going to see the change in heart. That's where you're going to see the fruit that begins to bear itself uh, in uh, your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, if someone came into me and said, I don't know if I'm part of the elect, and here's why, and actually they say and give evidence that, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not Christians. Would I then in turn say, yeah, you're probably not. So, best of luck um, uh, for that. Uh, no, because what will happen is that the devil, not the Bible, not what God has to say about it, it's the devil that thrusts them either into desperation where they're wringing their hands over their election, which has nothing to do with them and everything to do with God, or into wretchlessness of most unclean living where they say, well, if I'm not a member of the elect... Let's eat, drink, and be merry. If you've not uh, read, uh, I think it's in the bookstore, Rod Rosenblatt's uh, Solus Christus, uh, Christ Alone. It's a really great read, and there's one little bit that's always stuck with me, and that is the inner monologue of the college student. And this was me. I mean, he pegged me spot on. The inner monologue of the college student who goes off to school, believer, grew up at the Advent, wherever they grew up, 
they start going to church and then they rush a fraternity or sorority and then they start staying out a little bit on Sunday nights but they still peel themselves out of bed uh, on Sunday mornings or they make themselves to the uh, very convenient 4 o'clock service at Canterbury Chapel or wherever it is. Uh, and, uh, and then after a while you actually start getting pangs of guilt. You start thinking, I'm, I'm a fraud. I mean, if everybody in this room knew what I was up to last night, they wouldn't have me. You know, maybe, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I was never a, a Christian at all. And so what's the point of going to church? And maybe I should just make the best of my life now and uh, eat, drink, and be merry. And then maybe I'll come back around to it later on, but, but I don't know. And this is almost every college student that's a believer. Now, in part, they've mistaken Christianity for morality which it's not. Right? That's one thing. Uh, but the other thing is they begin to ask, well, if I'm behaving this way, then I guess uh, I'm not um, a member of the elect. So what difference does it make? And yet, these are the very people that God has compassion on. Heaven is populated by sinners, and hell is populated by the self-righteous. I mean, think about Jonah. Remember when Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh. Why didn't he go to Nineveh? It was, he didn't want them to hear the gospel. He didn't want them to be saved. Well, God took care of that. Um, so again, uh, you can lay all the plans you want. God's going to get you where he wants to get you, uh, even if it means being swallowed by a great fish. And he goes to Nineveh, and he begins to preach the gospel. And what happens? Revival happens. These unrighteous, terrible human beings come to believe and put their trust in the Lord. And what's Jonah's response? I knew this would happen. I knew it. But these people don't deserve it. And this is the churchy guy. Jonah's supposed to be the guy on God's side who's saying, these people with the way that they're living, they don't deserve to hear the gospel. And in the same way, we have to be very careful, I think, in talking about the doctrine of election when it comes to people who are shaky in their faith and, and are unbelievers. Be very careful about that, and the reformers were there. So now we get to the meat of it. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, uh, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, he decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver and curse and damnation those, those who he, he's chosen in Christ out of mankind, and bring them to salvation through Jesus Christ as vessels made to honor. And then he goes into um, some of what we've, we've covered in previous classes. They're really just rehashing Ephesians 1. And so let me read that uh, real quick. Uh, beginning with verse 3. Uh, this is right out of the gate in, in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ or daughters, uh, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in heaven and on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first hope in Christ may be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, what are you going to do? Right, so there's no doubt in God's Word, here and other places you can go to Romans 9 as well, and you can, again, uh, read the Jacob and Esau narrative uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, you can, um, uh, there's some other uh, passages that I'd be happy to uh, give you. Uh, one, we know that God is sovereign, and most of us would agree with that, Right? that God is sovereign. But I'm just going to go ahead and cut to the chase, and I want you to interrupt me with your questions because in the 10, 15 minutes that we have left, I want to be able to equip you uh, to deal with this. One, we know that God does, and the word for destined and predestined in Greek are two different words. So it means what it says. It doesn't mean foreknowledge. Right? It doesn't mean that, that God just knew who was going to pick him. Uh, that, uh, would un- that would mean that God is wholly responsive to us, which is not what Scripture says. Uh, what we see in the narrative of Scripture is that God is sovereign, and he continues, as Paul said here, um, as a plan for the fullness of time, uh, making to us the known according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Uh, and so, and, and uh, to the purpose of him, this is verse 11, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, this is where it gets dicey because people say, well, I'm a Christian, and so I'm believing that I'm a member of the elect, but what about mom? What about my brother? This doesn't seem fair. And there actually is a choice laid out in the Bible. And that choice is whether you're going to be a mercy man or woman or a justice man or woman. Do you want to take God up on the issue of justice? Because the moment that you start talking about fairness, you've really opened up a can of worms, haven't you? Because then you're talking to God and saying, I mean, this is is Job. This isn't fair. From a worldly perspective, I get it and I understand. But here's the other thing, is that even though you might say mom and brother and next-door neighbor, they're not Christians... Um, who's to say that they're not a part of the elect? Who's to say that God hasn't destined them for salvation? Because a lot of people will say, well, if God's already picked who's going to be saved, then why should we proclaim the gospel either in preaching or in evangelism? And yet that's the very means that God uses to open the eyes of the elect to his salvation, isn't it? Faith comes uh, by hearing. And so it's not as if there are all these identifiable characteristics because they do a very good job of talking about um, in work, by his spirit working in due season. Right? It's not like, oh, if you're elect, you come out of the womb and say, I believe. You know, it's, it's not that way. Although it's happened before. John the Baptist, remember, leapt uh, in his mother's womb when uh, the gospel was proclaimed to him uh, by Mary uh, when she found out that she was pregnant with uh, the Lord Jesus. Uh, so it's entirely uh, possible. And many of you here may have even had your testimony and be like, 
I can't remember not being saved. Just can't, right? That God got a hold of you at a very young age, and God bless you. For others of us, uh, it's in due season, right? It comes at a later time. And so the whole point of, of the doctrine of predestination, as it's laid out here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and elsewhere in the Bible, is that it's actually really good news. It's really good news. The other thing, too, and this is a very practical thing, it means that if someone becomes a Christian, it's not up to you to convince them. This is what I mean by that, that it's up to you to simply be faithful in your proclamation of the gospel, but it's not up to you to argue them into faith. The only way that that happens is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I have a friend who left the ministry because he said every Sunday I'd get up and I would try to tell the congregation what to do and they never listened to me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You, you definitely haven't read Ephesians 1. Right? Because what Ephesians 1 says is that we pour out the word like water and pray that God turns it into wine. We don't know where we're scattering the seed, whether it's on hard hearts, and we don't know whether God is about to plow up that hard, rocky soil. We just don't know. And so there is a sense in which we're just saying, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. There's a part of me that doesn't like this. I think it's unfair, but I'm submitting to your word, and I hear what it says, and I'm going to cling to your promises, and I'm going to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, understanding, and this is why he says it three times, what? To the praise of his glory. Salvation gives glory to God, not us. Why? Because, again, the greatest miracle ever wrought is our salvation. There's much more rejoicing in heaven uh, at that than anything else. That, that we've come to know the, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to stop right there, and in the next 10 minutes, uh, come at me and say, here's how I feel about predestination and why now I'm really mad at you. Tommy. Yeah, Luther was an earthy kind of guy. Um, he, he used such imagery. Yeah, you preach the gospel because that's the means by which, and this piggybacks on my sermon a little bit this morning, the preaching the gospel is the means by which people come to know Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Not human experience. God uses that absolutely. But how can they believe on him whom they have not heard? Right? They need to hear the gospel. And so, yeah, there's, uh, and even for the Christian, like it's not, oh, now that you're a member of the elect, let's talk about all the things that you need to be doing now. Now, Luther also had a great word about that as a follow-up to last week's question about where do works fall in. Luther said, God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor does. That's true. God doesn't need our works, but our neighbor does. And, uh, and I think that that goes hand in hand with our gospel witness. So I would be very hesitant to, to start inspecting tattoos um, and, and to see who it is. Uh, and I think that the biblical assumption is that um, if you, and, and understandably so, I mean, this is the biblical thing. If you're putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you've been sealed by the Spirit, right? That, that's your inheritance, 
Um, and, and that comes through belief in the Lord Jesus. I guess you're going to, go ahead. Right. It's not a, but it's his divine prerogative. I mean, to do that. The question is, uh, putting aside God's justice. And I think that when you get talking about election and predestination, some people want to go there. Uh, but God's justice is real. But the thing about it is, is it's not God's love for us is not looking the other way. It's not I know that you're sinful. And I'm just going to ignore it. God's not an Italian grandmother, you know, just, you know, who's, you could do no wrong uh, in their sight, and they just look the other way. Uh, but actually, uh, God's justice is fulfilled because he takes it on himself, right? He takes what we deserve. So our salvation comes at a tremendous um, price uh, that can never be uh, repaid. And so God's justice uh, and, and God, uh, his death on the cross certainly uh, is uh, enough uh, to save all of humankind. Uh, and this is where it is, because also, I mean, in spite of what we're talking about election, what the Bible also holds out is that each of us ha- are held individually responsible for whether or not we repent and believe on him. Right? That's the terminology from Acts. That in the, um, where is it? It's toward the end where God commands all people to repentance. It's not like this nice invitation where God's a gentleman who says, if you'd like to come in, you can come in, but if you don't want to, I understand. No, God says, get in. And so actually standing outside the kingdom of heaven is an act of defiance. And that places you square in the vicinity of justice, whereas stepping into the kingdom of God places you square under his mercy. Good grief. Which part? Yeah, so we're all held individually responsible for our choices. And, and so there, the Bible still demands a response. And so standing outside, it's not as if God's a gentleman who says, uh, if you'd like to come in, come this way. Uh, but actually, as the book of Acts tells us, that God commands to repentance. So God says, I want you. I want you in the kingdom. Come in now. There's a sense of urgency. The time is now. Let he who has ears hear. And if we decide that we're exercising our freedom by saying, you know what, I'm going to actually defy, I'm not going to turn down a nice invitation. I'm turning down an order. And I'm placing myself in the vicinity of justice rather than walking in to the vicinity of mercy. And I mean, the funny thing is, is that we have such a hard time with God being this way. Uh, And I think it's because of Western democracy. Uh, People in the ancient Near East still feel this way. They have no problem. And even the modern Near East have no problem with this kind of stuff because they get it. Now, in the Old Testament and even in the New, we call them kings. In our modern language, we call them dictators and despots. But actually, that was the model of government uh, in, in biblical times. And even to this day, if you were to receive an invitation to the queen, which I'm sure all of you have, Uh, It actually says Her Majesty commands your presence. And there's actually one that I've seen that says, under penalty of death. Now, she's not going to kill anybody, I don't think. I don't know. Uh, But um, 
Praise God for a constitutional monarchy. Uh, but um, I'm a Republican, don't worry. Not a little R, you know what I mean. Um, Brexit 1776. Uh, so, uh, and, and nobody, and we get an invitation from the queen that says that our presence is commanded, and y'all would plow over your children to get to the garden party. You would jump at the opportunity. You wouldn't be the least bit offended that qu the queen commands you. Why? Because you'd be over, oh, so overwhelmed by the gracious invitation. It didn't, doesn't feel like a command, does it? It feels like grace. What have I done to deserve this? And yet it's a command. Nailed it. <laughs> Joseph. Yeah, so the, the main objective of the devil, and I didn't even get into this in this morning's sermon, it's all there because of the, um, because of the, um, the demon possession. Uh, but the number one goal of the devil and the demons, which are fallen angels, is to make sure that you never hear the gospel. And so they thwart efforts for you to hear the gospel. Whether that's the suppression of the gospel uh, using foreign governments or even domestic governments. Uh, it's the suppression of the gospel by uh, the devil leading. And here's another thing. You, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can never be inhabited by a demon. I'll get into this another time if you want to talk about this because everybody likes talking about it. Um, because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. It's impossible. But you can be under influence. You can be sort of steered. I mean, we call it temptation. Right? So God, I think that the devil can lead people into our lives to say, you don't need this Jesus stuff. You were much more fun before you became a Christian. Why are you putting your trust in that? That's ridiculous. That's, that's, for, that's for children. Like, you're a man. Just deal with your own things and, and get on with life. Uh, that is a message straight from the pit of hell. And so anything that would veil the gospel... Even it might be a right intending thing, is a blasphemy and is of the devil, which is really strong language and is what got me in trouble at the nine o'clock. So. Uh, but the gospel's too important. It has to be unveiled, and we need to remove the man made stumbling blocks because the gospel itself to the unbeliever is already a stumbling block. It's foolishness, it doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is you're good, and so God rewards you. You're bad, God punishes you. Now, where the world doesn't have any problem talking about predestination and election is when we start talking about really bad people like Hitler or your 12th grade calculus teacher or, or whatever it might be, that you have no problem uh, executing judgment and hoping, uh, or uh, let's get real, Larry Nassar this terrible doctor from Michigan State who abused these women, children. I, I mean, we're all in the, when he, was, when he was declared guilty, did anyone say, eh, that's too bad? No, all of us said, hell has a very special place for you. You see, so the gospel throws us for a loop. So actually, we don't have a problem with God sending anybody to hell, per se. We got a problem with people going to heaven. Because what if you start walking around and you're like, hey, 
calculus, 12th grade, awkward. Now, it won't, of course, be awkward, uh, but, but um, yeah, the gospel throws us for a loop because it's, it's, it's backwards. It's left-handed. Uh, it doesn't go the way that, that we think it ought to go. All right, y'all can follow up with emails. I always love and enjoy those uh, for your tricky, complicated questions for your, uh, that your aunt and uncle ask you at Thanksgiving. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.